Well, let me pray for this morning and just kind of lift up this time before the Lord. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. As we pause and we reflect on, on just all that you've given us this day. Lord, we would ask that you would be honored. Lord, I ask that you would remove any distractions that would hinder us from fully being in your presence. Lord, I ask that you would be with those that uh, maybe even are struggling physically. Even hearing this morning of a couple people, Lord, we lift them up to you. We ask God that this day would be a day of celebration, a day of worship, a day of transformation as we're washed in your word. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God, you are, you are a living hope. Sending your son to die on the cross for us, God, and so we can put our faith, we can put our trust in you. We can put all of our worries, all of our cares, we can put it on you. God, just help us to not only put our faith in you, but also to be your disciples, God. And help us to just be able to have the courage to, to share your word and give us strength in those situations where we have those opportunities, God. And as we're here today, just open up our hearts and minds as Pastor Kerry prepares to teach us the Bible. Just be with us to absorb your word, God. Thank you for everything that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Maybe see it, and if you would, open up your Bibles to Acts 25 as we continue in Paul's account going into 26. Billy Graham once asked this question, what is your story? If you're a Christ follower, you have a story. God's writing a story in your life, and it's the story that is the story that's based on your redemption, how you came to faith. We need to be in a place where we're ready to share our story at any time. That story that's written on our hearts of how we came to know who God is, who Jesus is, our salvation. Yet, sharing your story publicly could be intimidating. For example, if I was to ask one of you to come up and share your story right now, you're all like, not me. <laughs> everybody look away. You know, it's kind of like that classroom thing when the teacher asks a question, everybody looks down. You never make eye contact. When you think about that, why do people not share their story? Why do they, they shy away from it? I came up with a couple of things. Um, one, we don't share our story with others. We don't share the redemption story with others of the gospel. Oftentimes because we don't really believe or really don't understand what happens to people when they don't know Jesus. If you really understood, comprehended, you got it that when somebody dies in their sin apart from redemption, apart from a new life, they will spend eternity away from God, in torment and hell. It is a powerful, powerful thought. And so we don't share our story because, quite frankly, we don't really feel that there's a sense of urgency. I'll talk with them later. What if later doesn't come? Others are afraid to share their redemption story because they really don't believe that they have a good story to share. 
They don't believe that they have the authority, the power, that God's really done a great work in their life. I've heard people say, well, you know, you've got a better testimony than I do. No. Your story is your story. Your redemption story is unique to you. And it's God's work in you. Some people wrongly believe that witnessing is a divine suggestion. It's not a divine suggestion. It's a, it's a commission to every Christ follower. You're commissioned to share your story. You're, called to, you're commanded to go tell your story within that. And so what ends up happening is when given the opportunity, we just don't embrace it. We shy away from it. We hesitate from it. And Satan, in essence, is silencing the church in that. We need to be able to share our story, especially when we are given that invitation. We look for those invitations to be able to share our story. Because God has written a unique redemption story in your life, individually. And when He lines you up with the right person to share that story, He has written the story in your life so that you could be a benefit to somebody else in their life. It's not random. These are divine appointments that God says, take what I've done in your life and share it with this person. Why? Because I'm doing a work in their life also. And they need to hear from you specifically about your story, about what God's doing in your life. And so we need to, to boldly testify about the story of redemption in our life. And we testify with a purpose. We testify and share that story, not that we are glorified, but that God is glorified and they'll come to faith and knowledge of who Jesus is. Because that's exactly what Paul was doing here in this text this morning. Paul has been in house arrest for two years. He has gone through, and we've been, we've been working through this passage in Acts, this, this bigger section, where Paul has been under trials under different people, being charged with being a pest. He's infecting the whole world with what? Oh, the gospel. And he is charged with defiling the temple, speaking against Rome and the, and the Jewish laws and the customs that are there. He's accused of all of these things, but the reality is God is writing Paul's story. That began a long time earlier. In fact, we talked about the fact that it began even prior to his birth that he would even be born a Jew and a Roman in preparation for these events that are happening. But if you remember when we were in Acts chapter 9, God gave, Jesus specifically, gave Paul a promise. He said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. Ananias said, I don't want to talk to this guy. And God says, no, he needs to go. And now he is before Gentiles. And now he is before kings. And now he is before the Jews because it was all part of his story in the plan. You are where you are because God determined you to be where you are to tell your story of redemption. To be able to do that. And so we need to fulfill that calling. Further, when Paul was in prison... He got this word of encouragement in Acts 23.11. It says, But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said this, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, you must also witness at Rome. And we look at that and he says, Okay, you're going to go to Rome. 
Well, by this time in Paul's life, he's like, am I ever going to get there? Why is it taking so long? Well, because part A has to be complete before part B is done. You have to be a witness before the Jews and the kings and the Gentiles. And you're doing it now in this Caesarea Maritima course. And so now we pick up here where Paul is, standing, is going to be standing before Festus, the Roman governor, King Agrippa, the Jewish king, and the Jews, and this cohort, everybody's there, and he gets to give a testimony. The testimony that we're going to see today in Paul's account is the longest in Acts. It's the most conclusive. And he's speaking to a Jewish king, which is interesting, and we'll unpack that in a little bit. But Jesus had intended Paul to be a witness. And he's continuing to write his story. His story doesn't, didn't just happen on, on the Damascus Road. The redemption story is a continuous action of life. Do you realize God's still writing your story? It's a continuous action. And everything that happens is all part of that story. I'm going to ask that you would stand as we read a portion of our text. We're not going to read all of our text this morning because it's way too long. But we are going to read and give respect to the words of Jesus as, he would, as Paul would declare these words in court. Acts chapter 26, verses 16 to 18. You can follow along. Paul repeating the words of Jesus. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending Quote, to open the eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by the faith in me. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. Much better than the whole chapter, wasn't it? We look at this, and, and so what do we see here in the beginning? Well, one of the things that, that we've got to understand is the first thing that happens in this particular court trial is Paul was invited to give his testimony. As a Christ follower, we need to accept any and all invitations to tell people about Jesus. Any and all invitations. If somebody invites you to, to, to tell them about Jesus, accept that invitation. Embrace it. Don't shy away from it. Now, they may, may overtly say, tell me about Jesus. In fact, we were, I was talking with somebody this morning as they were walking along a path and somebody said, you know, I really don't know a whole lot about Christianity. Now, <laughs> the, what this person didn't understand is that they were talking to a missionary. <laughs> but you think about that. Somebody will give you just this little opening to be able to share your faith. Look for those openings. Embrace it. Don't shy away from it. Paul is given this opening here in the text. We're picking up in chapter 25, verse 23. It says this in 23 to 27, sets up this, this whole setting for Paul. Actually, 26.1, for this whole setting. It says, so on the next day when Agrippa came together with Bernice in a great pomp and, and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and prominent men in the city and commanded Festus 
Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, all you gentlemen are present with us. You see this man of whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both in Jerusalem and here loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. Now Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make a defense. So what does he do? He gets this, this attention, not only of Festus the governor, but of the king, who in the previous meeting with Festus heard that Paul was there and said, I want to hear from this guy. And so we see that the next day he didn't waste any time. Festus says, I need to let Herod hear from him. Festus was looking for something to write about Paul because he, got, he has to send him to Nero. And he doesn't want to send Paul to Nero without an understanding or at least, what is, why is he here? So with Herod, who was a Jewish king, who wants to hear from Paul, Festus, who was a Roman governor, doesn't understand Judaism, he is going to get greater insight to be able to write this letter. Everybody's kind of working from this inquisitive position that is there. So Agrippa and Bernice show up in what we would say pomp that is there, or this idea of pageantry. It's interesting because the, the Greek word for this word pomp Fantasius or fantasy, I think, is very interesting to me. Herod shows up in his own fantasy that he is all great. It reminds me of a red carpet event in Hollywood. All these people show up and they're looking so good. And it's nothing more than a fantasy. Herod shows up with Bernice and he's got all his robes and he comes in and everybody's this big parade of who's who, muckety-muck and all of that. To hear from this bug-eyed, knock-kneed, unibrow troublemaker that is a pest. It's amazing that Paul would have that kind of an impact. But is it really Paul? No, it's the Holy Spirit. President also would have been the five commanders, and each commander is over a thousand men, five cohort commanders that would have been there. So he's got the, the cohort commanders, he's got Agrippa, he's got Festus, and he's in that courtyard, and he's in that place, and, and Festus opens up with this, you know, this is why he's here, let me give you this kind of this, this address that is there. And he addresses all the people, this is why we're here, and it was Paul's request, and this is what I've done, and so on and so forth. And then Agrippa then takes over the, the event in verse 1 of chapter 26. Agrippa addresses Paul and says, Paul, you now speak. And Paul raises his hand. Now, he's not raising his hand to silence the crowd. This was all part of proper oration in the culture. There was, a, there was a process that you would speak. So he is very proper in that. 
So raising the hand was commonly known for the orator, now I'm going to speak. It wasn't like hitting a gavel or anything. It's just raising a hand. Okay, now I'm going to be the one addressing you and acknowledging him in this place. And within this, he embraced that opportunity. He is there. Would you be ready if someone gave you that opportunity, that open door? Maybe you don't raise your hand. I think that would probably be kind of weird. But but if somebody gives you that opportunity, would you speak? Embrace that opportunity? Yes, here's my chance. You should. Because the power of God will come upon you to speak. You want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. You embrace those opportunities and He will give you those words. But you have to be determined to be obedient to speak when that opportunity takes place. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says this, But sanctify or set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Think about that first phrase. Set apart as holy Christ as Lord in your hearts. You always begin there. And in that place, always be ready to make a defense. Or that word defense is apology. It just means to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that lies in you with gentleness and reverence. If you have eternal hope, then you should be ready to tell people about your eternal hope. There are people that are dying and spending eternity in hell, hopeless. There are people in this world that have no hope because they don't believe in life after death. All they accept is annihilationism. That you just turn back into dirt and all of that. There's no hope in that. If their hope is only based on their life in this world, is that very hopeful? No, it's hopeless. If this is the most heaven that they're ever going to see, how hopeless is that? And so within this, we need to be ready to give everybody that answer. Evangelist George Whitefield once said, God forbid that I should travel with anybody a quarter of an hour without speaking of Christ to them. He determined that I would not travel with anybody more than a quarter of an hour without speaking Christ to them. I challenge you, next time you ride an elevator, speak Christ you got 30 seconds in between the floor. If you're in the store, speak Christ. Wherever you're at, be ready to give that answer and boldly share. Verses 2 through 23 is Paul's testimony. As he goes through that testimony, we're going to read, I'm going to read it through the entirety so we know, but also then go back and unpack it. It says this, and in regard, so Paul's speaking now, in regard to all the things of which I am accused of of the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then all the Jews know my manner of life, of my youth from up, which the, was from the beginning spent among them of my own nations in Jerusalem. And since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Now I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain. And they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused of by the Jews. 
And why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So then I thought to myself that I to do many things, hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, being furiously enraged at them. I kept pursuing them, even to the foreign cities. While so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. And when I had all, and when had, all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you. Rescuing you from the Jewish people, from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open the eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God. And they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among all those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and return to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained, from help, uh, obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses was going to take place, and that Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be first to proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now you look at that, that's not a very long testimony, is it? But the testimony was succinct. And if you heard me say the word hope multiple times, it was because that was the focus of his message. To be able to bring hope. To be able to explain why he was so passionate about declaring that message to them. So when you're giving your testimony, one of the things that you have to do is respect the person that you're sharing with. Don't come at them like they're an idiot. You unregenerate sinner, let me tell you what you need to do. No, show respect. Show respect for them. And that's what Paul does in verses 2 and 3. He shows respect. He uses this, this capitosia benevolence, or the benevolent way of speaking, which again was part of that, that fishing for... for Agreement. It's that idea of showing respect. And he shows respect to this Jewish king, who really wasn't a Jewish king, but he was appointed that. And so he was showing great respect within that. And how blessed he was to be before Agrippa. Do you realize that sharing the hope of salvation with an unbeliever is a blessing to you? It's a blessing. 
You get to participate in somebody's eternal destiny when you share Jesus with them. The words that God uses through you may unlock eternal life in their heart. You get to plant that seed. That's a blessing to be able to be in that place. And so he, he addresses, and, and in this address, he's going to say, basically, I'm innocent. Paul's testimony in Latin is called an apologia pro vita sua. Literally means it's a defense for your life. And so he is, he is giving a defense as if his life depended upon it. And he was explaining himself in verses 4 through 11. He really explained his condition. When you're giving your testimony, it's okay to share with people who you were. You know, it's an interesting thought when, when I was thinking about this. Unbelievers understand unbelievers. They understand why? Because they're sinners. A sinner will understand a sinner. A regenerated sinner or a believer in Christ who's been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit will understand a sinner. Why? Because they were one. But the sinner cannot understand the regenerated believer. Why? Because they aren't one. The first part of your testimony and sharing your testimony is to relate to the person and say, look, at, at one point in time, I was like you. This was my life. I understand what it means to walk in darkness. I understand what it means. And so you share who you were. And you don't share it with such, such a, a, a thing that you know, pushes you above people or in pride. No but relatable. So as Paul relates this, he says, look it, I'm a Jew, and he's speaking to a Jewish king. And I grew up in Jerusalem, as everybody around here knows who I am. And everybody knows that I stuttered under Gamaliel. He, not in this speech, but they would have all known that. So he says, I'm, I'm, I'm a Jew that grew up in Jerusalem, that obeyed all the laws. And I was part of the sect of the Pharisees, the strictest part of that. Obeying the laws and obeying the prophets. Question. Out of all the people in the room, who is Paul focusing on? Herod. He's giving a Jewish testimony. He's already spoken to Festus and gave a Roman testimony, but he's speaking to a Jew, so he's giving a Jewish testimony. Respect your audience. Respect the person. And give to them a testimony that they can relate to, that they could understand. Don't make it up, but share it. And what is the point? Paul says, I'm on trial for the hope of our fathers. He says it three times. I'm on trial... Because I believe the law and the prophets, the same law and prophets that you know, that you believe in also, as he'll ask him in a moment. I'm on trial for fundamentally believing the same thing that you believe in the same foundation, the law and the prophets that speak of the hope of the resurrection within this. Understanding that the law and the prophets speak of the Messiah dying and, and this idea of life after death from a pharisaical standpoint. 
I believe the same thing that you do. But he's going to unpack it in a minute. I believe it's been fulfilled, which is the key within this. Faith in the resurrection is what gives us hope. It's what gives us a hope and a future within this. The Jews believed in life after death, but they were having a hard time grasping that Jesus is the first fruits of that life after death. They couldn't comprehend that it was fulfilled. They were believing in an eternal promise, but did they really grasp that it happened? If you believe that a person's life can be changed, but when the Holy Spirit comes in and transforms your life, do you really embrace that it could happen? Yes. Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Paul would say that the twelve tribes, now by this time there was only really ten, but when he talks about the twelve tribes, he's talking about all of Israel believed in this promise. All of Israel believed that there would be life after death. And it's being fulfilled. And it was fulfilled in Jesus. It was part of the Jewish faith. In fact, Anna, the prophetess, at the dedication of Jesus, says this in Luke 2, 36-38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, I love this, 84 and she never left the temple which meant she was there ministering all the time, serving day and night, fasting and praying. 84 years of age, still coming to the temple and praying. Phenomenal. It means you're not done until God says you're done. At the very moment that she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued speaking to Him of all of those who were looking, note, for the redemption of Jerusalem. This tells us that the Jews were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And Paul is saying, I'm on trial because I believe it has taken place in the person of Jesus Christ. It's okay to be definite on the fact that God is very much alive. And the Holy Spirit does empower believers and transforms life. That's our testimony and that's our hope. He goes on and he asks a rhetorical question. Why is it an incredible thing that God raises people from the dead? Think about that. Is it an incredible thing that God can raise somebody from the dead? Is it an unbelievable thing that God, the Almighty, the Supreme, the Sovereign One, could decide to raise people from the dead? They believe it. It isn't that incredible. God can do whatever God wants to do. And so within this, he asked this question. You believe that there's a resurrection in life. It's an incredible thing that God could raise somebody from the dead. And He did. His name is Jesus. Within this. Paul would later write in Romans 1, 2-4, he says, which He promised beforehand through the prophets in Holy Scripture concerning His Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, Note, according to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus really did rise from the dead. And Paul is testifying to that in front of this Jewish king who theologically would accept it, but practically struggled with it, along with all the Jews. And that's kind of what ends up happening with people. They can believe that there is a God, 
But can that God be personal? Can that God forgive me of my sin? Can that God give me eternal life? Your witness and your testimony testifies to that with confidence. Yes, absolutely. And so Paul describes, he says, this is the foundation of my faith. And I grew up in this and I believe just like you, but I believe it was fulfilled within this. Now, Agrippa, this is how much I was wrong. I was a prosecutor just like everybody else. I was a persecutor just like those that are persecuting me. I know what it's like to hate Christians. I know that. I saw them as a cult, this Nazarene sect. I even went to the leaders and got letters approving me to go and to persecute them. I was part of the Sanhedrin that was casting votes for them to be taken out and thrown into prison and even killed. Who's he speaking to? All those that are persecuted. And what is he saying? He says, I know what it's like to think like you. When you're sharing your testimony and sharing your witness, relate to that person. Say, I know what it's like to be in that place. To be in that place of being lost. In fact, so much so in Acts 8.1, it says Saul was heartily in agreement with putting him to death, Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria and except the apostles within this. Paul declares, I was on mission to stop this. I was on mission to reject this. And it's not wrong to say, look it, I know how much it is to hate Christians. And it's interesting because Paul was not on a mission to try to kill as many people as he could. What he was trying to do was prove the hypocrisy within it. He would go to the synagogues and find the Christians and make them publicly declare that their faith in Jesus was a lie. That was the goal. Because if he can discredit the people, then he discredits the movement. A Roman governor by the name of Pliny had written a letter to Caesar at one time, and he said this, quote, I find it impossible to force any true Christian to curse the name of Christ. Those that have been truly converted will not deny Jesus. Is that true in Paul's day? Yes. Is that true in our day? Yes. We think about how many Christians have been put to death because they refused to deny the name of Christ. That in itself is also a witness and a testimony within that. Who were you? How did you grow up? What were you like before you got to know who Jesus is? But the next part of your testimony should be, how did you meet Jesus? How did you meet Jesus? Paul says this in his conversion experience in verses 12 to 8, that he was on the road to Damascus. He was heading north to go persecute Christians. When a shining light had shined out throughout the whole area and everybody saw it, they fell to their knees and he heard the voice of the Lord call him by name. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Isn't it hard to kick against the goats? Now, you think about that. Every conversion is personal. Jesus calls you by name. He will call you by name. Do you know that time? 
When did Jesus call you by name? The interesting thing is, Jesus alludes to the fact that the salvation experience is, is a process. Because he asked them finally on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Isn't it hard to kick against the goats? Goats were these sharp sticks that were used in, in livestock to be able to get them into stalls and get them moving. You know, they have shock sticks now and, and all the different things. But, but within this, it's to get them going, which gives the implication that Jesus had been working on Paul for a long time. What were the goats? What were the sharp things? I believe it to be, and, and we're not told specifically, but I believe it was Paul's conscience. That God had been working in, God, in Paul's conscience. Empathy. And as he was ripping families apart and having that, that, that tension between that which is religious and that which is emotional and personal, because he's still human, and having to wrestle with that. And it speaks of the internal conflict that Paul had as he was persecuting Christians, but Jesus must have been working on him to get him to that place. And that's true for everyone. Jesus will work on your heart and get you ready to hear His voice. And if you don't listen, and He keeps having to poke at you harder and harder and harder, well, eventually He may have to knock you off your high horse and get you to a place where you understand. Paul's experience was the right response. He says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And Jesus identified himself as Jesus, the one you persecute. And the light went on. He was now out of darkness and he was facing his Savior. And he knew, because of all of his upbringing, this is Jesus, the Messiah, the risen one. This superstition that I've been persecuting all along is real because I see him. And that is the conversion. When a person goes from believing or, or thinking that, that Christianity is a religious superstition to coming to that place where it's face-to-face -face with Jesus and it is real, the only answer is, yes, Lord. Who are you, Lord? What's interesting also is Paul and Jesus. Jesus uses words that were used to call a prophet into ministry. You can read about it if you take if you're taking notes. You'll find this similar words in Jeremiah one, seven through eight, Ezekiel two, verses one and three, and Isaiah forty two one through seven. But the similar words, for example, in Ezekiel's account two one and three, it says this: He said to me, "Son of man, stand on your feet, that I may speak to you." And then in verse three, he says, "Then he said, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel." To rebellious people who have rebelled against me that their fathers have transgressed against me this very day. In other words, the calling of a prophet was stand up and go. Stand up and go. And that's exactly what God does for the believer. When you come to that place of regeneration, you are to stand up and go. Stand up and go. Paul says, I was told, stand up and go. To go where? To go be a good steward of the gospel. To be an evangelist. To go where? To go to Damascus. To go to Jerusalem. To go to Judea. And to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't we hear that before? Acts 1.8 says this. 
Jesus' words, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Paul was now part of Jesus' mission. He was no longer part of the persecution mission. He was part of Jesus' mission. When you become a Christ follower, you become part of God's mission to go out and to share that gospel. Where? Wherever He sends you. What's your message? The same message that Paul had. It, it's the message of, of, of hope. The message of new life. To be able to be in that place. And so you can describe that passion. He says you're to go up. And what is the mission? You're to go up and note verse 18. Hey, Paul was starting with 17. Rescuing you from the Jewish people, from the Gentiles. That's what he's going to do. But 18, to open the eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified. Paul declares his mission. He is passionate about giving this message. You say, well, what is the message? I'll simplify it for you. Here's the message. Go, tell people, repent from their sins, turn to God, and live a life according to repentance. Simple. Repent from your sin. In other words, see your sin the same way that God sees it. Turn to God and live your life in alignment with repentance from sins. In other words, living that life that's unto God. That's the message. Somebody could say, what do I do? Repent from your sin. Turn to God. Live a new life. How do I do that? Repent from your sin, turn to God, live a new life. Well I, don't, well, I don't know what to do. Let Jesus tell you. Well, where do I find that? In the Word of God? Holy Spirit? You need to understand that you are saved, and it's a gift. Paul would later write that in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, for it's a gift of God. Note. Not as a result of works, so that anyone can boast. It's a grace gift. So what do I do? Just, just receive the gift that God's given you. And live that new life. What was Paul's new life? Being zealous for the mission. He went from being a zealous persecutor of Christianity to be one who was establishing Christianity wherever he went to share that gospel message. Why? Because it's the hope. Because now he sees his people dying in their sin. Not just his people, but the people of the world. He sees people walking in darkness. And he's now in the light. What should be your passion? To realize that you used to be like these guys. But now you're in the light. And what would it be like to go back to the people that are walking in darkness and saying, look at, I remember how miserable life was like and how great life is now because I know God and I know freedom and I have hope. That bottle that you go to, that liquid encouragement that you suck up to try to numb yourself, you don't have to do that anymore. That, that money you chase, prestige, your name, or whatever it is that you're looking to find yourself. You don't have to do that anymore. There's something greater. And it's hope. As in Jesus. And then pray that your audience might be saved. Verses 24 to 32. Paul wraps this whole thing up within this. 
and, and has a conversation. Now, meanwhile, he gives us testimony in verse 24 to 32. Festus jumps up saying, Paul, all your learning has made you mad. You've lost your mind. Paul says, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, with respect. Respectfully, I'm not nuts. That's true. And then the king, and he says to the person he was really speaking to, the king knows about these matters. And it's with confidence I'm persuading the king. And nothing's been done in secret. King Agrippa says to him, or he says to King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. In this short a time, you're almost making me a Christian. I don't know what to do. Paul's answer to him was this. Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. The king stood up with the governor and Bernice and those sitting with him, and they all had gone aside and began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. Festus jumps up and says, You lost your mind. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and they cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. When you share your faith, Pray to God they come to faith. Pray to God that they come to that place. You are not telling your story just to tell a story. You're telling your story with the hope that they will believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And Paul says that is the case. Herod's like, oh, you're getting a little bit close now. I'm going to get up and get out. And people will do that. And that's fine. But at the end of the day, witness with purpose. Witness with the purpose that the purpose, person you are sharing Jesus with will come to faith. Give them that opportunity. As Paul did, I would pray that you would get saved right now. The only thing I would have added to Paul if I could is, Herod, what's keeping you from getting saved? And you may ask that question. You may ask that question. What's hindering you? Herod, what's stopping you? Maybe that's a question for you to ponder today if you don't know the Lord Jesus. God's done everything to call your name. And maybe you're hearing it. Maybe right now your conscience is being pricked a little bit. Answer and say, yes, Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you give us a hope and a future. That you give us a story of salvation. And for many in this room that I know their story, I praise you and thank you for their story. Lord, may we boldly testify to that story. We know that the hearers will have different responses. That's okay. You've called us to be a witness and may we be that witness in this world. Lord, I pray that revival would begin. That your spirit would be poured out in a mighty way. That people would come to the faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's you this morning, you can pray a simple prayer. Jesus, I know you're calling my name. Yes, Lord. Send me. Forgive me and give me hope. Father, I thank you for this time. May you work in our hearts and continue to work in our hearts. And as we close our service out this morning, may our worship be sweet unto you.
In Jesus' name. Amen. God, we thank You that You call us by name. We thank You that You have given us hope and future in life. May we take that hope forward and be ready to give everybody an answer for the reason why we have hope. May we boldly share You, Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray for those opportunities that we would be ready, that the hearer would be ready, and people would come into the family of God. Lead us now, Holy Spirit, we pray, in all that we do. And God, may everything we say and do make you smile. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen. and praise Jesus. Go be a witness. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.